millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles Podcast. This is the second of four parts on the Crimean War. In the first episode in the set on the Crimean War, 1853-56, I discussed some of the background to the conflict, in particular the reform efforts of the Ottoman Sultan Mahmud II. Mahmud was in many ways an enlightened ruler and reformer, who did everything within his power to modernise his creaking empire. But he took over at a difficult time, and was unfortunate to preside over the loss of his navy, of southern Greece and of several other Ottoman territories. And on top of that he had to contend with the highly independent-minded governor in Cairo, Mehmet Ali. As a reward for his interventions on behalf of the Sultan in Arabia and Greece, Mehmet Ali expected to be given control of the province of Syria. The Sultan offered him instead the island of Crete, but he rejected it, aware that the costs of keeping order there would be a drain on his finances. Mehmet Ali then went into discussions with the French about joint operations against Tripoli, Tunis and Algeria, but King Charles X of France decided in the end to go on his own, and a French army occupied Algeria in 1830. The year after, 1831, Mehmet Ali, therefore still intent on expansion, launched land and sea campaigns against Syria. The region offered an excellent source of manpower, and natural resources such as iron, wood and coal, as well as an opportunity to expand his tax base. The city of Damascus also acted as a hub of pilgrimage and trade routes. Commanding a revitalised Egyptian army, His son Ibrahim routed the Ottoman forces, seized Gaza, Jerusalem 
and after a short siege, Acre. He then swept north to Damascus and Aleppo, and then went on to Anatolia, where he began to even threat the Ottoman capital, Istanbul. Not far short of complete panic, the Sultan sent for an urgent plea to London for aid. The British Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, declined to help, so Mahmud had little choice but to call on his old enemy, Russia. Early in 1833, a Russian fleet from Sevastopol landed a troop of 6,000 troops near the mouth of the Bosporus for the city's defence. He was soon followed by a second force from Edessa, twice as large. Russians, therefore, alone among foreigners, now had access to the Sultan. Their soldiers and sailors walked the streets of Istanbul and their officers were called in to help drill and command Turkish units. Against such a force, Ibrahim knew that he had no chance and sensibly decided to negotiate. By this time, Palmerston had woken up to the seriousness of the situation, as had the French government. Together, they prevailed upon the Ottomans to insist on the Russians' withdrawal, in return for certain major concessions and an Anglo-French guarantee against further invasion. Mehmet Ali was given the title of Pashlik, of Egypt and Crete, and now in addition presented with that of Syria. At the same time, in a separate treaty, Mahmud confirmed an agreement with Russia, which included a secret clause giving Russian warships the right to pass freely through the straits from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, a privilege denied to all other foreign powers. But Mahmud could not in the long run accept the cession of such a key part of his dominion to a rebellious vassal, whose ambition clearly was to convert them into hereditary pashliks, virtually independent of the sultan. So five years later, when Mehmet Ali refused to pay his annual tribute to Istanbul, the sultan declared war, sending an army of 24,000 and a supporting fleet to Syria with orders to drive out the Egyptians. The expedition ended in disaster when his army was defeated at the Battle of Nizip on the 24th of June 1839. Thanks to generous Egyptian bribes, vast numbers of Turkish troops deserted, while the commander of the fleet, presumably for much the same reason, sailed it straight to Alexandria. And on the 1st of July, the same day by chance that Mahmud died in Istanbul, handed it over to Mehmet Ali. The French, who were allied to the Egyptians, declined to take any action, but the other European powers were horrified. On the 15th of June, 1840, a conference in London, presided over by Lord Palmerston, and including both Austria and Russia, presented Mehmet Ali with an ultimatum. He must withdraw all his troops from northern Syria and Crete and return the Turkish fleet to Istanbul. If he agreed to do so, he would be recognised as hereditary pasha of Egypt and Pasha of southern Syria, but just for his lifetime. But if he refused, the British and Russian fleets would together put Egypt and Syria under a blockade.
When Mehmet Ali refused the offer, the British and Russians were as good as their word and in addition landed an expeditionary force and defeated the Egyptian army. Finally, Mehmet Ali agreed to back down and to accept the deal. The negotiations among the great powers of Europe demonstrated the suspicion each had of the influence wielded by the others in the Ottoman Empire, and particularly fearful lest another power should gain an untoward advantage, whether strategic, territorial or commercial. In July 1841, they together signed the Straits Convention, where it was agreed that the Dardanelles and Bosporus should remain closed to foreign warships in times of peace. From this time, British influence in the Near East began to flourish. With their advanced industrialization and economy, they were the best place to profit from the commercial opportunities there. Mehmet Ali made no further attempt at expansion before he died in 1849 at the age of 80, and the dynasty which he founded was to last well over a hundred years until the middle of the 20th century. It is difficult to assess the legacy of Sultan Mahmud II, during whose reign Greece, Serbia, Moldavia and Wallachia all broke free. Algeria was occupied by the French, and Bessarabia and large parts of the Caucasus by the Russians. Lord Kinross describes him as one of the greatest of sultans. In his book, The Ottoman Centuries, he writes, quote, Unlike his great predecessors, he was no military leader, and the Ottoman Empire consistently shrank under his rule. But internally, thanks to his ability as a ruler and his foresight as a planner, he had begun, perceptibly, to rise from its decline, breaking the shackles of a rigid reactionary order to move slowly ahead in the direction of a modernized, liberalized state. End quote. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. He was succeeded by his 16-year-old son, Abdul Majid, who took measures to implement his father's reforms. With the promulgation of the so-called Edict of Gulhane, he calculated on demonstrating to the European powers the sincerity of Ottoman efforts to modernise their state and their capacity to participate on equal terms, and at the same time to show a willingness to address concerns 
about the welfare of the Sultan's non-Muslim subjects. Within the Edict of Gulhane was an emphasis on the rule of law instead of personal arbitrary decision-making, but its application was very uneven across the empire. Various factors bedeviled the implementation of the reforms. Instinctive resistance to change from above, lack of money and trained personnel, an underdeveloped infrastructure and a largely literate population. Caroline Finkel, in her book, Osmond's Dream, writes, quote, The promise of equality for all before the law was not one to be easily assimilated in Ottoman society, since Islam enshrines three significant inequalities those of believer and unbeliever, master and slave, male and female, end quote. And she points to the problems in particular of charging a common tax regardless of religion, where beforehand Muslims and non-Muslims were subject to different tax systems. Virginia Axan, in her book, Ottoman Wars, 1700-1870, to describes the period of Tanzimat, or reform, as one of immense upheaval, as the Muslim population found their privileged status in society undermined by new laws concerning equality, on top of economic challenges posed by the empire opening up to the global economy. The reforms and reaction against them are indicative of the long struggle of an Ottoman Muslim dynasty and its bureaucracy to join the nations of Europe on its own terms. From the point of view of Moscow and Tsar Nicholas I, the propping up of the Sultan's power was most likely not seen as a permanent solution. The key was finding arrangements with one or two of the other great powers on how to divide up the spoils at a time when the empire finally collapsed. The election of a Conservative government, headed by Sir Robert Peel in 1841 in London, known to be less hostile to the Russians than the previous Whig administration, gave Nicholas hope of bringing the British round to his partition plans. In 1844, he made a sudden arrival in London, which surprised everyone. His impromptu visit was one of many signs of a growing rashness in his behaviour. After 18 years on the throne, he had begun to lose those qualities which had characterised his early rule, caution, conservatism and reserve, and he became inclined to impulsive behaviour. When in London, he argued that the time had come for the European powers to step in and to petition up the Turkish territories to avoid a chaotic scramble over their division. Robert Peel and his foreign minister, Lord Aberdeen, hinted that they were ready to go ahead with such a plan, but only when the need arose, and they did not see that yet. The Tsar left England with the false impression that the British had essentially agreed with him to start work on the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. The British government, however, felt that they had made no such commitment, and that their conversations with the Tsar were no more than an exchange of opinions, and certainly not anything binding in a formal sense. And so seeds of miscomprehension had been sown, which were to lead, within a decade, to major hostilities. The Tsar's visit did nothing to dispel the British distrust of Russia that had been building for decades, both in government and among the public. 
Nicholas's brutal suppression of a Polish rebellion in 1830 had outraged public opinion in Western Europe and dealt his reputation a blow from which it never recovered. Then, in the year 1848, when revolutions broke out across Europe, Nicholas actively worked to suppress the uprisings across Central and Eastern Europe. In June, Russian troops crossed the river Prut into Moldavia, and in August moved on to Wallachia, where they put down a revolt. The next year, the Tsar responded to a desperate plea for help from the young new Emperor of Austria, Franz Josef, to help regain control of Hungary, which was in revolt. Under military pressure from both a massive Russian army and a revived Austrian force, the Hungarian rebels capitulated. His actions cemented Nicholas's image as a reactionary and brutal autocrat in the eyes of many in the West. They read about the Tsar's dreaded secret police, the third section, about the prevalence still of serfdom in Russia and how industrial development there was negligible. In short, Russia was seen as a country with a primitive economic and financial system, yet it was still feared on account of its imperial ambitions and its military potential. The various revolutions which swept Europe in 1848 are described in a previous podcast. In the late spring and early summer of that year, regimes were falling like dominoes, or where rulers survived forced into implementing widespread reform in the face of popular uprisings. As the year progressed, however, the various governments recovered their nerve and the initiative, and pushed back the revolutionary wave. In many cases they were able to revert to a situation similar to beforehand, and to get away with very moderate reform. But none could go back exactly to the way things were before the revolutions, and each looked to new methods to assert their authority. All of them recognised the need to focus on the economic distress which had been at the root of the revolutions, so each focused on economic development. In Spain and Piedmont, for example, new ministries were created for commerce, education and public works. Restored princely regimes in the German states borrowed heavily to build railways, bridges, canals and schools. Everywhere on the continent, the state took over the central direction of railway building, the major source of the economic boom of the 1850s. Press censorship shifted from the ineffective pre-revolutionary attempt to stop articles being published to surveillance of those who wrote them, together with an increasing willingness of governments to use the press for their own propaganda. Europe after 1848 was thus not the same as the one of the Vienna settlement of 1815. After a lengthy period in which the great powers had worked together to maintain the status quo, the year 1850 inaugurated two decades of rapid change and violent upheaval on the international scene. The most successful rulers realised that the preservation of order and stability required radical measures to co-opt the masses into the support of the state. They also saw that nationalism was becoming increasingly powerful and determined to exploit it for their own purposes. One such ruler was Louis Napoleon of France, who has some claim to be the first modern dictator. A nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, he first came to power in France in December 1848, elected to the position of president after the fall of the monarchy earlier the same year. 
Three years later, on the 2nd of December 1851, when the National Assembly refused to allow a revision of the Constitution, which would have given him a second term as President, he organised a coup. The Assembly was dismissed and Royalists and Republicans arrested. A fortnight later, a plebiscite was held and the people of France voted overwhelmingly to support the new Constitution. Within a year, Louis Napoleon was created Emperor for ten years as Napoleon III. His familial connection to his uncle, the great Napoleon Bonaparte, was crucial in his elevation, but he realised his legitimacy depended on popular support, not on some old established religious or secular principle or tradition. From an early stage he promised to restore France's fortunes and positions on the European stage with bold statementship abroad. He invested heavily in economic development and encouraged the creation of new banks which helped finance a boom in railway construction during the 1850s. This stimulated the iron, steel and engineering industries and the emperor also embarked on a major programme of public works. The regime was bolstered in 1854 by a huge increase in the police force, tenfold in Paris. The number of police commissioners was doubled, and the rural gendarmerie, 14,000 strong, was strengthened to about 25,000 officers. The police hounded opponents of the regime and imprisoned those who dared to publish attacks on it. Above all, the army became a central bulwark of the regime, its pay, prestige and conditions raised. As well as playing to the Bonapartist tradition, Napoleon III relied heavily for his political support on the French Catholic Church, which had seen itself threatened by the revolutionary outbreak of 1848. An opportunity for him to brandish his credentials with the Church and at the same time restore French glory and prestige was presented by the events in the Ottoman Empire and the competition among great powers for influence there. As described in the previous episode, he sought to gain Catholic support by backing the claims of Catholic monks against those of the Orthodox religion to access to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem against those of Orthodox monks backed by Moscow. The issue quickly became a proxy for the rival ambitions of the two powers in the Middle East when Napoleon III was keen to clear the way across the Isthmus of Suez, still nominally under Ottoman control. Sultan Abdul Majid, faced with these rival claims, was not sure the best action to take. The Russian ambassador in Istanbul, Alexander Menshikov, took a particularly aggressive stance towards the Ottoman government. Age 66, he had little experience of diplomatic negotiation, having spent his career in the armed forces, where he had gained the reputation as a forceful and determined officer. In February 1853, he presented the Sultan with several notes from the Tsar concerning the question of Orthodox subjects in the Ottoman territories, especially in the Holy Lands. The most demanding was an international agreement to be drawn up to give Russia what amounted to sovereignty over all Orthodox subjects of the Sultan. Fearing the Russian response if he declined, Abdul Majid kept negotiations going while at the same time approaching the British and French about naval aid. The French responded immediately, and by April they had a fleet anchored at Athens. Lord Aberdeen, the Prime Minister of Britain, was more reluctant to get involved militarily. 
Hoping for a diplomatic solution, he sent former British ambassador Stratford Canning to Istanbul, who persuaded the Sultan to reject the Russian treaty proposal. An old Etonian, Canning had spent most of his life in Turkey. Tall, dignified and generally well-regarded, the Turks trusted him implicitly. The Sultan agreed with Menshikov to negotiate on the holy places, but refused to give way on the border question of Russia's right to protect Orthodox subjects in his empire. On the 5th of May, Menshikov made an ultimatum and declared if it was not signed within five days, he would leave Istanbul and break off diplomatic relations. With Canning urging the Sultan to hold firm, the Ottoman cabinet rejected the ultimatum. Menshikov waited a few days hoping for the Turks to give way, before finally on the 21st of May taking down the Russian coat of arms from the embassy and departing for Odessa. A few days later, the Tsar decided to carry out his threat and to invade the Orthodox territories of Moldavia and Wallachia, thereby triggering the Crimean War. My name is Carl Rylett and you've been listening to a History of Europe Kibatos podcast. You can contact me directly at Carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net or on the Facebook page for the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, then you can do so at patreon.com stroke history Europe. Or if you like the History of Europe Kibatos, then why not give it a great review on iTunes Today you heard music composed by Frédéric Chopin. First there was his Nocturne in B-flat minor, and then his Polonaise, number one. I hope you enjoyed. And I hope you can join me next week for the third part on the Crimean War. Until then, all the best and goodbye. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.